Welcome to Walk in Truth. These are the Bible teachings of Pastor Michael Lance, equipping you to reach out with God's truth to all people. Learn more about the program, podcast, the book Tactics, and how to donate when you visit walkintruth.com. Now here's part two of Pastor Michael's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 called The Lord's Supper. Stephen Ohm, who has written a commentary on 1 Corinthians, says, whereas most groups divide up along the lines of rich, poor, and free slave, the church is to be the one institution where things get flipped upside down. When Christians eat common bread and drink from a common cup, it is a symbol, a visual representation of the common divisions and disunities of our world being conquered in Christ. We tend to marginalize others who are different than we are. We tend to alienate people as the other because they are not like us. Therefore, rather than being concerned about their interests, we place ourselves at the center and ask everyone else around us to revolve around us. But the beauty, says Um, of the Lord's Supper is that there is a common bread and a common cup, close quote. It makes us one in Christ. Those divisions should die in the church. But like a lot of things that we all wrestle with, we can carry stuff into our Christianity. And we're all works in progress. And we all need to admit right now, me included, that, Lord, you need to change my heart in some areas. There may be things that I don't see that are in my heart that can come out in the way I think or the attitudes I project to others. And that's just frankly wrong. I want to be like you. I want to see those barriers broken down. I saw how you went to the Samaritan woman. I saw how you went to those who were outcasts of society. And if I'm going to eat your supper, I want to do it to your honor. And I want to do it to your glory. The Lord's Supper is just that. It belongs to Him and He calls us to it. And when it's done right, it's beautiful, isn't it? We often, you know, get a chance in this particular congregation to come to the front uh, when the services are a little bit smaller and we come down together and we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup. And it becomes a testimony of our unity and our oneness in Christ. You see, we are supposed to be an alternate community, an upside-down social order. We are to be a gospel community. The meal can get muddied if our conduct is wrong when we come into a place like this. Christ's loving sacrifice should be at the heart of what we do. Instead of this meal, though, in Corinth being a theater of grace, it became a theater for class division. It became a theater for others looking down on other people, And whenever that happens in the church, it is a sad commentary because it means that we really haven't gotten in touch with God's grace. Because if you understand the depths of God's grace, that stuff will go away because all ground is level at the foot of the cross, brothers and sisters. And we need to see that the change has got to start in the church. The Lord's Supper provides a special opportunity for God's people to come to the table. The head seat is taken. It's by the head of the church, Jesus. He is the head, we're the body. And so we want to reflect and honor the head of the table when we come to his table. There should be none of this. And this is what Paul says in 17. He says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Because you come together, the verb is used five times in the section, you come together not for the better, not for the greater advantage, but for the worse, 
for the weaker. In verse 2 of chapter 11, Paul praised the church that they kept some of the traditions that he had passed along to them. But now he says, I will not praise you because when you gather around the Lord's table, it is not for the better, it is for the worse. Now that's a sad commentary. If you go to church, you hope that it's ultimately for the better, right? That you've edified somebody else, that you've built up somebody else, that you gave somebody else a hug or shared the love of Jesus. But what a sad commentary if the church comes together and ultimately it's for the worse. Somebody, someone would leave the church building unedified or torn down or looked upon with contempt. That is the exact opposite of what Christ wants. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, says the writer of Hebrews, not forsaking our own assembly together as the, is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, Hebrews 10, 24, 25, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We've all studied the passages about our words and how our words can either build up, edify, or tear down. Well, when we come into the setting of corporate worship or a Bible study or wherever we may be, and we've gathered in the name of Christ, then Christ is the one who is to lead what we do and how we behave. The worse uh, has a connection to moral evil. It has the idea of not making someone stronger but weaker. For in the first place, 18, when you come together, when you assemble as a church, ecclesia is the word for church, as the called out ones, being a member of the church, you've been called out of the world. Here's what the word church means. It means called out and called to something. You were called out of the world and called to Christ, but brothers and sisters, please hear what I'm about to say, but you were also called to one another. When you were called into the body, out of the world, you were called to the head of the church who died, shed his blood for you, rose from the dead for you, but you were called to his people, away from the world and to his people. So it's not just that you've been called to Christ, but you've been called to his body. We are one in Christ. But Paul says, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions, as we saw in chapter 1, exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Some scholars believe that Paul's last words there are ironic. Like, of course I believe it. Or, as I used to say when I was young, I can't believe it! Whenever, when something wasn't going my way, that's, that was my famous phrase. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. My mom would say, believe it. <laughs> because it's happening. Anyway, that was, that's something to burst your bubble right there. What a strange and ironic thought that they came together for division. Can you imagine waking up in the morning and you're getting your hair ready for church, and you, you're thinking, let's go to church today so we can divide more. Wow, what a thought. What a wretched thought. Let, let's, let's go to church today so we can look down on other people. <laughs> really? Is that the heart of Jesus? Well, Paul says that's what you're doing. And Paul says... If, if we could translate it this way, I can't believe it. It's kind of mock disbelief. It's incredulity. Chloe's people in chapter 1, verse 10, had told Paul about what was happening. And the root of this is socioeconomic gulfs between the haves and the have-nots. 
That's pretty much what's going on. A theater of discord. For there must also be factions, 19, among you, in order that those who are approved or pleasing or acceptable may become evident among you. Paul says, in one sense, I guess there has to be this, so that there can be a separation from the wheat and the tares, the true and the false. And this is a strong word because this means that the factions that existed in the Corinthian church with attitudes around the Lord's Supper began to reveal who was a true Christian and who wasn't. Who had come into this setting simply because they wanted to show off or do whatever they were going to do, but they weren't converted. So they came into this setting and it became evident who was filled with the love of Christ and who was not. You see, we can make all the apologetic arguments we want to make, folks. But if our living actions don't follow our apologetic arguments, our arguments mean zilch. If we, have, if we speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and we'll get to this chapter in a future study, but have not love, we are a clanging gong. We're a noisy cymbal, and I'm a drummer, all right? My heart goes out to drummers. I know the pain they go through. I'm just kidding. But if you're a drummer, you know what I'm saying. But if a drummer is playing without a band, especially an inexperienced drummer, you ever get that first set of drums for the, the kid? This is what grandparents do. They get it for the grandchild. Oh, it's a strategic move. It's their birthday. You say, what did you get, little Johnny? We got him a drum set. It's one way to get your kids back if you... Uh, have that kind of agenda if you don't want to walk in love. <laughs> uh, let's turn over to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. John is known as the apostle of love, and he's writing some things. To be able to discern the true believer from the false, this is 1 John 2, 18. He says, children, it is the last hour, 1 John 2.18, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen, from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown, it might become evident, that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Flip over to 1 John 4. Look at verse 19. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love, you all know it, because He first loved us. Now keep reading. We often think that this means we love God because He first loved us. That's an implication of the text, but keep reading. If someone says, I love God, and what? Hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this suggestion, no, oh, I'm sorry, it's the wrong translation. This commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should what? Should love his brother also. How many times do you think on a Sunday morning, we are sinning against God just right there. I'm talking about across the country. I'm talking about around the world. You'll hear more from Pastor Michael in a moment. 
Our mission here at Walk in Truth is to equip you with the Word of God and to give you the tools to express your Christian faith. But how do you initiate conversations effortlessly? Walk in Truth and Pastor Michael Lance would like to offer you the 10th anniversary edition of Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions by Greg Kokel. This is how to navigate a conversation to build a bridge from a conversation to get to spiritual truths and to get to the gospel. We are offering the book Tactics as a thank you when you give a donation of $20 or more to Walk in Truth. Visit walkintruth.com, click the donate button, or call 844-48-TRUTH. That's walkintruth.com or 844-48-TRUTH. Hey, Shane Lance here, and I wanted to take a quick moment and encourage you to subscribe to our devotional called A Step Closer. This is a quick read from scripture with a little bit of commentary, and it's a great way to keep you growing in your walk with the Lord. In our crazy society right now with all the things we jam-pack into our schedule, I'll be the first to admit that sometimes it's hard to find time to study God's Word. But it is so important as we grow in our relationship with the Lord to study His Word. It's such a vital aspect to our walk. You can text Step Closer as one word to 33222. Again, that's Step Closer as one word to 33222. We really believe here at Walk in Truth that this can be a great instrument in helping you grow in your relationship with the Lord. So once again, we'd encourage you to subscribe to our devotional called A Step Closer, and you can text Step Closer as one word to 33222. Make sure you subscribe to the Walk in Truth podcast, available on your favorite podcast app. Now, back to Pastor Michael Lance, right here on Walk in Truth. You see, we can make all the apologetic arguments we want to make, folks. But if our living actions don't follow our apologetic arguments, our arguments mean zilch. If we, have, if we speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and we'll get to this chapter in a future study, but have not love, we are a clanging gong. We're a noisy cymbal, and I'm a drummer, all right? My heart goes out to drummers. I know the pain they go through. I'm just kidding. But if you're a drummer, you know what I'm saying. But if a drummer is playing without a band, especially an inexperienced drummer, you ever get that first set of drums for the the kid? This is what grandparents do. They get it for the grandchild. Oh, it's a strategic move. It's their birthday. You say, what did you get, little Johnny? We got him a drum set. It's one way to get your kids back if you uh, have that kind of agenda, if you don't want to walk in love. (laughs) Uh... Let's turn over to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. John is known as the apostle of love, and he's writing some things to be able to discern the true believer from the false. This is 1 John 2, 18. He says, children, it is the last hour, 1 John 2, 18, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming... Even now, many antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown, it might become evident, that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Flip over to 1 John 4. Look at verse 19. 
1 John 4.19 says, We love, y'all know it, because he first loved us. Now keep reading. We often think that this means we love God because he first loved us. That's an implication of the text, but keep reading. If someone says, I love God, and what? Hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this suggestion, no, oh, I'm sorry, it's the wrong translation. This commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should what? Should love his brother also. How many times do you think on a Sunday morning we are sinning against God just right there? I'm talking about across the country. I'm talking about around the world. See, John's test, as much as it is about theology and doctrine, turn back to 1 Corinthians 11, ultimately is expressed in the action of love. And it's revealing to see what was happening around the Lord's Supper. People were being factious, puffed up, prideful. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 20, <clears throat> Therefore, when you meet together, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And someone in the church might say, yes, it is. And Paul would say, no, it's not. Because when you gather, don't call this the Lord's Supper. Call it your supper. Call it your party. But don't you dare call that the Lord's Supper. What you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord is obviously not in charge of it. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper, 21, or meal, if you have the ESV, first. I'll explain that word in a moment. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. Many years ago, I was a young pastor, and I was asked to share a communion meditation on Easter Sunday. So it was a big day for me. Church was packed. Everybody was dressed up. It was Resurrection Sunday, and I was leading the communion time. I began to speak, and a man was causing some distraction over here. People were rustling around, and you could hear a low murmur, and I kept trying to go and speak over it, and he was getting louder, and people were getting more uncomfortable, and heads in the church were turning, I tried to speak louder over it, and finally the man stood up in the middle of the church, looked to the back, one of our ushers was standing at the back door, and said, tell that guy to stop looking at me! <laughs> I was like, oh, great. Here I am sharing my communion meditation on Easter Sunday, and I got this wacko in the third row. So I said, I said, sir, sit down and respect what's going on. He was like, sorry, pastor. And he sat back down. Ushers came down, and they dragged him out of the church, and they talked to him for a while. And so later on, I, I talked to some of the ushers. and said, what happened? And they said, well, we found out the guy was on a three-day alcohol binge and he ran out of alcohol and he couldn't wait till the communion tray came by so he could start nailing as many of the little juice cups as possible. And he was getting upset because it wasn't happening because I was talking too long. I know you all can't understand that. I never do that. First of all, he made a major mistake because we were serving Welch's that morning. So I don't think it was going to really help him. But, but the morning became all about him and his need and what he wanted. And this attitude, apparently in the Corinthian church, 
is some people were at communion. This tells you with all the debate about, you know, was the wine real in the first century? Was it diluted? It may have been diluted, but it had some alcohol in it because I don't know how you get drunk if it doesn't have alcohol. Unless you can drink enough Welch's to get drunk, I don't know. <laughs> but, but think about what was happening. So people were arriving. Some poor people were arriving late. They had very little. And you arrive, and you watch other people eat a five-course meal who are wealthy, and you watch other people who are intoxicated, schnockered at the Lord's Supper, so-called. And you have to be thinking, what? What in the world is going on here? They assembled, but it was for the worse. And Paul says, you're not eating the Lord's Supper. See the word um, first there? Takes his own supper first. I won't try to pronounce the Greek word for you, but one commentator says, it can mean to take in advance or to take before. In the first meeting, the wealthy not only began their private meal before the congregational meal, but also ate by themselves and had more to eat. The late arrivals, probably the poor freedmen getting off from work and slaves who had no control over their schedules, they failed to wait for one another. That's also verse 33. Thus let, left the late arrivals hungry. Uh, if you ever come late to a potluck where we didn't ha quite have enough food, that's happened. Sometimes that happens at our men's breakfast. We cook up a certain amount of food. We don't know how many are going to get there. And if you're late, there's a couple potatoes for you. <laughs> but that's about it. And so that may be one meaning. But a second meaning of first argues that the verb does not mean to consume the food before the arrival of others, but it means to eat or drink or to devour. The problem is not that some were jumping the gun and eating before others arrived in this view. The problem is that they devour their own ample amounts of food in the presence of their fellow Christians who have little or nothing to eat. Can you imagine it? You showed up with a five-course meal and a huge basket, and there you are. Mmm. Oh, yeah. It's good. And this family is over here in a the corner. They're also Christians, and they're sharing a tiny bit of bread. And in that ancient context, apparently, unlike our church potlucks, people didn't share. You just had what you had. And maybe some people were starting to say, look at them, they're sharing a piece of bread. Look at their clothes. And Paul was like, what? Are you kidding me? That's not really what's happening, is it? Jude 12 says, these men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. When they feast with you without fear, fear, caring for themselves, they are clouds without water, carrying along, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. Can you imagine on the heels of a meal like that with all of this stuff going on, somebody coming up to a microphone and praying something like this? Lord, as we take the elements of the Lord's Supper following this great potluck time, thank you for giving your precious life for all of us. Thank you for laying down your rights and shedding your blood and dying for us as the bread of life, the, the juice of the new covenant, the wine of the new covenant in Jesus' name after you just did that? Can you imagine how hypocritical somebody who's poor in that setting listens to that prayer and says, really? And frankly, sometimes people look at us 
And maybe if our behavior is contradictory, they think the same. Drunkenness was closely associated with idolatrous rites from pagan festivals, and maybe that was a bit of what the Corinthians were carrying into the so-called Lord's Supper. One writer says, call it what you will, but don't call that the Lord's Supper. Strong. You're listening to The Lord's Supper, Part 2, on Walk in Truth. You know, we'd really like to hear from you and why you listen to the program. What is it about the messages that help you? Please give us your comments by emailing us or writing us. Contact information is on walkintruth.com, or you can call and leave us a brief message at 844-48-TRUTH. Visit walkintruth.com or call 844-48-TRUTH. Thanks for reaching out to us. Now, here's Pastor Michael. Hey, I want to let you know that when you partner this month with Walk in Truth, we're going to send you a copy of Greg Kokel's new updated and expanded book called Tactics. This is how to navigate a conversation to build a bridge from a conversation to get to spiritual truths and to get to the gospel. Everyone who gives a donation of at least $20, you'll get a copy of the book Tactics or becomes a monthly partner at at least $10 a month. Hey, we appreciate it ahead of time, you praying for us and partnering with us. A lot of people giving a little bit goes a long way. Thank you so much. We appreciate you guys. God bless you. Tune in tomorrow for the conclusion of Pastor Michael's teaching called The Lord's Supper. I'm Mike Massaro. Hey, thanks for listening to Walk in Truth today. Our goal is to equip you to reach out with God's truth to all people.